Hi everyone, it's Dr. Judy. Welcome to the launch episode of my podcast, Supercharged Life. I am so excited for you to meet all of my wonderful guests so that we can all learn together how to supercharge your lives. This is a very trying time for all of us. And a lot of us are struggling with anxiety, with the unknown regarding the threat of the coronavirus, but we can't focus on that 24 seven. We really do have to step away from the 24 hour news cycle and these scary headlines and reorient ourselves to what's really important to us. And that is why today I'm going to talk to my sister, Maria Ho, champion pro poker player. And she has so many wonderful practical tips for you. So join me for a little coronavirus respite and remember to connect with your family in safe ways during these trying times. If you can't be with them in person, do a FaceTime call, do a Skype, do a Zoom. Find some way to still have that connectivity and let's all try to stay healthy together. She is one of top three female poker players in the world and she has over $4 million in live tournament earnings. She's also the youngest woman to be inducted into the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. And she also just happens to be my little sister. So, Maria, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so funny. She's giving me a poker face right now, <laughs> um, which makes a lot of sense because she is an amazing poker player, as we've just discussed. And Maria, I want people to get to know you, and I want people to get to know the real me as well. And who better to do that with than with actual family because you've known me your entire life because you're my younger sister. So oh, don't worry. I'm going to keep it really real for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so Maria, I am so proud of you and all that you've accomplished. You are just a superwoman. And I think you totally embody a person who is living a supercharged life. And that's why I was so excited when my producer was like, you need to interview your little sister for your very first episode. I'm like, well, duh, because you're doing so many amazing things. And every day, I don't even know where you are because you live this crazy jet-setting life that I could never do. You're in a different quadrant of the world literally every few days because that's where your life takes you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to get into poker in the first place. Well, um, I never even thought about playing poker, not even just as a hobby. That was never something that was on my radar. It was just something that happened in college. I, you know, we moved to the States with our parents when I was, you know, four and a half, five, you were nine. And, you know, we were just trying to get settled in and assimilated into the culture and everything was so different and so new. And, you know, education was so important to our parents that that was all they could talk about and focus on. And so me, it was all about, okay, you know, graduate high school, go to college, get a degree, get a good job. Um, and then somewhere along the way, I found poker in college. I had just friends that played in the dorm rooms and, they were like, oh, no girls are allowed in this poker game we have. And of course, that just really made me want to go and play with them even more, even though I knew nothing about the game. So I showed up with a keg of beer because we were all broke college kids and who could say <laughs> no to a free keg? And they let me play. You showed up with a keg? Yes. A whole It was keg. like a bri I was bribing them, you obviously. You literally I went mean, and bought a keg, though. I don't even know how to buy a keg. I mean, even you now. just go to, like, the supermarket. It's really, really Oh, you can yeah. buy a keg yeah. from but a supermarket? But I don't buy kegs anymore. I don't, I don't do keg stands. My keg stand days are over. Okay, but how many um, people were you trying to bribe if you brought a keg? Was it, was it like, like 20 people? Well, no, it was like, it was like <laughs> a game of, like, with seven or eight people, and I only knew one or two of them. And I, kn and I was definitely crashing. Like, I did not get an official invitation. And um, I just showed up, and... And they were like, okay, fine, I guess you could play. But they probably <laughs> just thought that I was going to show up and probably hate it or, you know, just feel uncomfortable in the environment because it was all guys. But I didn't. I loved it. I beat them the first time I ever played. Didn't know anything about the game, so obviously got very lucky. And then I just kept showing up. And then at, at that point, I felt like they couldn't really say no. So Wow. But that makes so much sense given what I know about you because you're very obstinate and you're very stubborn. And if yes. somebody tells you you can't do something, you want to do it, even if originally you didn't want to do it. Right. And so that makes sense. But So you kind of stumbled onto poker. What did you like about the game? Well, 
Growing up, I think my first introduction to card games was through our grandfather on our dad's side. I remember that. Who taught me how to play bridge. And he obviously just had this really, you know, love for the competitive aspect. So it wasn't even so much about the game. He just always emphasized that we had to win. He was like, no matter what, we have to win. And so then it kind of instilled in me that really competitive um, drive. And so... When I found poker, I think what attracted me to it was that, you know, I wanted to win, but also the strategy was really interesting. And by that time, I kind of understood games a little bit more to know that, you know, not everything's about luck. It's not just, you know, what you see like blackjack or whatever in the casino. This is something that you could really study and get better at. And that was really intriguing because I never want to do something that I'm not good at. And if I'm not good at something, I want to learn how to get better. So it was just one of those things where I had to start from scratch and learn. And that was really appealing. You know, I think that really brings up how much our parents really do influence us because that's really how they are. They're so hardworking. They start from scratch and and they work hard to provide a life for us in America. As you mentioned earlier, we immigrated here when we were kids from Taiwan. And I really think that they came for better opportunities for us. I mean, yes, for themselves, but really for the next generation. And it was really hard the first few years. I remember there were times when we didn't even have a home and sometimes we would all four of us be crashing in one room mm-hmm. and we would have to take turns sleeping on the bed. Um, usually you didn't have to take turns because you were the baby <laughs> of the family, but I did sometimes have to sleep on the floor. Um, but it was so, so great thinking back to what they really taught mm-hmm. us. You know, I think our parents just showed us how important it is to always work hard, always appreciate what you have, and basically make your own way. And even if you don't have a skill set in the beginning, they kind of really taught us what I call this growth mindset, where it's like, even if you don't have that skill, if you just really focus. Oh, oh my God. I'm the worst. It's my alarm to take medication. It's birth control, Um, guys. Don't worry about it. So awkward. I felt like, Maria, Maria, I thought you were a pro. I thought you were a pro at this. Very necessary. Um, Don't you know that the first cardinal rule. When there's an alarm going off. What what medication are you taking? What's going on? I just said birth control. Guys, it's very important to regulate your cycle. Okay, so she wants to take birth control at the middle of the day. (laughs) That's so awkward. How many times does that go off, though? It's it's the middle of the day. I know, I know. It actually went off in yoga class before. That was really bad. I felt Because, first of all, you're not supposed to have your phone in yoga class, so I already broke that rule. And then it went off, and I think it was during Shavasana, which is like the resting portion. Uh And it's like the worst thing you could do is disturb that part. Okay. Sorry about that. Awkward, but do you want to take your medication now? Because I don't want (laughs) to miss. No, it's fine. It's in the other room. I'll do it in an hour. (laughs) I'll do it when this is over. I will remind you so that you don't have any uh, unexpected surprises. Um, Okay. So as I was saying, our (laughs) family really did teach us this idea of a growth mindset, which is that even if you don't know something, if you just focus, you can learn it Mm -hmm. and you can be good at it. And Mm -hmm. you have to be willing to put in the time. And it's so nice to see our parents be able to sort of achieve that level of stability in their own lives. And Mm -hmm. I I feel like they're just such great models for us, you know? I mean, they weren't perfect parents, but they, I mean, who is? But I felt like that was such an important lesson for both of us. For sure. And I feel like it just really boggles my mind because, you know, now we're at this age where when you think about it, our parents were in their like early 30s when they picked up their whole life, everything they knew and moved to the States and they, as you said, they did that for us. And it's so crazy because I couldn't imagine having to do something like that and having such a huge, you know, change and, and with two kids even. And, you know, that's why I think, as you had mentioned too, like we obviously had some things growing up that, you know, were difficult, but I feel like seeing our parents persevere Mm -hmm. is such a good motivation for us. And they really showed us how we would want to be in our lives and, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe with our children one day. And so I feel like there's so many life lessons that they've taught both of us that I think have translated into how we became who we are today. So, yeah, I mean, I really think that what they did was really model good behavior most of the time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they had their own flaws, but, you know, they model good behavior most of the time. And also they allowed us to make mistakes. One of my biggest pet peeves right now is that sometimes parents are so afraid of their children falling, of their children scraping their knees and arms, you know, both metaphorically and physically, that they don't 
basically allow them mm -hmm. to learn resilience. You know, sometimes you have to make mistakes and suffer the consequences to learn that you can overcome it and become a better person. And I feel like so many parents now, they're treating their children many times with these kitty gloves, obviously probably from a place of love, but actually it doesn't set them up mm -hmm. for real life. And I think that that's one of the issues in terms of thinking about how we can reprogram right. the next generation is sometimes it's okay to let them fall, to let them make mistakes, mm -hmm. and then to let them learn from it and to let them struggle, right? I mean, right. everybody struggles. And we both struggled in different ways. I think that it's interesting because when people see us now, whenever I put you on my Instagram, people are like, you guys are like twinsies. I'm like, no, we are not. <laughs> We're but so I feel far like as that. we've gotten older, yeah. I think we have like morphed closer to one mm -hmm. another. But we were so different as kids. We really I mean, for the, I mean, for, you know, for one thing, you were a bully and I was not. Okay, I wouldn't say I was like a bully, all right? Oh, uh, yes, um, you were. You started bullying me more, when you were two. I was more aggressive than you, that's for sure. I was a little bit more of the antagonist. But I wouldn't say I was a bully. But for sure, like, <laughs> I definitely tried to play, like, the youngest kid card and, yeah. But. Well, I have a really great story about you that I still remember <laughs> to this day. I think I was five or six and you were, you know, obviously a toddler. You're like two. And I remember that you... We're still in your, I don't know what that's called, but you know, you have like one of those things that you roll around because you can't walk right, by yourself. Right. And um, obviously I don't have kids because I would know what that, <laughs> that is called. But basically you're rolling around in this thing and you snatched the TV controller from me. And then you hit me over the head with it. <laughs> and then you started crying. So then mom comes from the other room and she's like, what did you do to Maria? And meanwhile, you you were the one who tried to beat me up with a TV controller. So, you know, I mean, I knew that that was the beginning of Maria being the bully and Judy being <laughs> the, long, the victim yeah, of long Maria's bullying. Long teenage years of me bullying you. Yeah, yeah. That actually happened a lot, I felt like. I felt like um, in, in the teenage years when I had a boyfriend, I hid him in the closet. Oh, I remember that one. And then what did you do? I Tell had the a story. I had a Hello Kitty camera. And I opened the closet and you had hit him in there. And then I took a picture and then I was like, I'm going to tell mom. And then I like ran up the stairs and he actually ran up after me, which yeah, he that was, was aggressive. That was inappropriate. Okay? That was inappropriate. But, uh, but um, he like tried to chase me and steal the camera from me. But um, I definitely yeah. told on you. Yeah. So. Yeah. She yeah, you blackmailed me a lot. <laughs> That's okay. We, I still love you very much. So, you know, we're, we're very similar in some ways. We're very different in other ways. What I find interesting is that you found a career that utilizes psychology but in a different way. So I always tell people I am doing sort of the academic psychology in many ways. I became a psychologist, you know, sort of that traditional route of being inundated in the topic of psychology, whereas you are like a street psychologist because I see you manipulating people all the time <laughs> at the poker tables. And in the beginning, when people didn't know who you were just yet, and you were kind of newer in your career, you would play this crazy game where you acted like the cute little girl who didn't know anything and then you needed to be taught even though you had all the knowledge. Do you remember that? You did that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I was always a little bit interested in psychology. Like in college, I had considered majoring in psychology. But then, you know, I discovered poker so early on in, in college that I didn't even realize all of the things that I that I was doing just playing poker that really, you know, crossed over with psychology. And it wasn't until I started learning more about the strategy of the game. And when I realized, you know, talking about manipulation, I definitely felt like I could, there were certain things that I could do that would influence how other people would play against me. Um, and it made them easier to play against because I would use their perception of me or their misperception of me against them. And so that was when I realized that along with this strategy of how to play the game, there's this other level of kind of getting into your opponent's heads a little bit and outmaneuvering them. And, you know, it's a mental game in the sense of not only do you have to be really strong mentally to kind of withstand how... Um, poker is in the sense of sometimes you can show up to work and lose money and you have to be really strong to kind of weather those storms, but also the sense of how, you know, it's a very adversarial relationship. Every day you sit down at the table, it's kind of like you versus that person. And 
you have to find a way to cut it out with them. And so it was just really interesting that all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait, I am kind of using so much of, you know, this street psychology every day in poker. And then it also started translating into my interactions with people outside of poker, I noticed that, you know, I would have this really interesting way of like almost interrogating my boyfriends <laughs> of like, you know how like in poker you're trying to find out what somebody has, like what ca- what cards they're holding. And then I was like, and I started using some similar tactics with like trying to find out what my boyfriend was up to or what they were doing or what my <laughs> friends' boyfriends were up to. I had like really good ways of like figuring things out without a lot of information, which poker is about, you know, again, of limited information and it's up to you to use all of the cues, whether it's socially or through betting patterns or tells or whatever, to kind of get that information to help you make the best decision on how to play your own hand. And so I started realizing I was doing that outside of poker as well. Wow. That is so not how I use psychology. But (laughs) I love what you just said because I think, like you were saying, there's different ways in which people can apply psychology to their lives. And that's actually one of the things that excited me the most when I got into the field is like, you can use psychology in so many different ways. You can decide to be a psychologist and do things that psychologists do, or you can use psychology in everyday life. You can use it in marketing. You can use it in advertising and how you build relationships with people and how you achieve your goals. And so it's just so applicable across the board. And so I, I've been thrilled to see your career take on such a shape where you actually utilize psychology every day. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's a little bit of a darker side of psychology, <laughs> but that's really cool. And I have seen you interrogate some of your boyfriends and yeah, it's scary. I don't really want to be interrogated like that. And actually you've spared me most of the times from that kind of a thing. I have. Yeah. Because I feel like you, since you are a psychologist, I don't want to get psychoanalyzed. So I feel like I shouldn't try to like outmaneuver the psychologist in the situation. Okay. So tell me what are some of the benefits and some of the really annoying things about having a psychologist in the family? Because I feel like we've gotten into arguments about this. Well, for sure the benefits are like I'm going to call you up for free advice all day long and you can't reject me because I'm your sister. Like you can never be too busy. You can't <laughs> charge me your hourly. Um, so that's really great. But obviously there were times when I felt like because you were a psychologist, it's a little bit of a I know better than you do kind of thing, which it's okay <laughs> because you probably do. But obviously sometimes as your sister, I want to hear more of a – like maybe less of a clinical analysis of my situation and more of just like the empathetic, like, okay, you're my little sister and I see what's going (laughs) on, but I'm not going to really like tell you necessarily how you could, you know, fix the situation or make it better. I just want to empathize and be there for you. So it's like, it's almost like sometimes there's like unwanted advice, but at the end of the day, I like appreciate it. But maybe in that moment, I don't need to hear exactly that, but Okay. I have other people I could call for that. That's, so that's okay. good feedback. I'll, I'll, I'll consider that the next yeah. time you call me. But, you know, sometimes I think you actually want me to tell you something. But I feel like we get in that classic argument. And sometimes it's kind of like a male and female argument where you start to solve the problem for the person. And they're like, I just wanted you to understand how yeah. I was feeling. Also, I'm not done talking about my feelings yet. So, okay. Yeah. Point taken, point taken. Um, one of the things that I think is really fascinating, too, is, you know, as we grew up, um, you know, we obviously develop different personality traits. We're actually very different people. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people don't realize that um, when they see us together. They're like, oh, my gosh, the sisters, you guys yeah. are so similar. But what do you think are some of the biggest differences between you and I just in terms of our personality or like the way we do? Well, things? for sure, you are a huge like growing up, you're always a goody two shoes. You were like, you're clearly still a <laughs> perfectionist and you were back then too but you're definitely like a people pleaser I am too but in a different way like I felt like it was really important for you to always kind of do what you were told but also be the kind of person that you thought our parents wanted you to be but for me the more that happened the more resistance and pushback they would get whereas I felt Mm -hmm. like you always wanted to kind of fit that mold more Mm -hmm. um and you were like such a goody two shoes. I got into all this trouble and you always just made me look even worse because <laughs> you were always just like perfection and you never did anything wrong. You never got into trouble. And even, you know, back then I felt like I was like the black sheep, especially compared to you. Um, but another thing that we were really different is actually, you know, you look so presentable all the time now. You're always so like well 
unkempt and stuff, but you were a little bit of a tomboy back then. Our dad really wanted to have sons and he had two daughters and he definitely tried to make you yes. look like a little boy growing yep. up. I remember that. You had like a huge weird sweater vest face um that was not cute and i was like i was always actually really girly but you were like into sports you were like really physical and athletic and i was never that um but i feel like outwardly i might seem like tougher than you but actually you're like physically way stronger and way tougher than me (laughs) but you always kind of look you're you're definitely more feminine looking now but you were wearing like weird khaki like shorts that were like an awkward length and like with the sweater vest i just just remember like going into oh. your closet and you know how most people's older sister would have clothes that you want to borrow I did not want to borrow any of your clothes yep. growing up yep. Yep. Um, so I feel like we're really different in that way but now <laughs> we're kind of similar I mean I think we're yeah. both pretty girly now but <laughs> but I will say that people just don't if they see you kind of in any physical environment like if we went and like played some recreational basketball like you would just get down and you would get dirty and I won't like I don't want to break nails I don't want a hair out of place but like you would would be totally comfortable with that still so that's kind of like your old tomboyish side that comes out um I mean we were so different um yeah like I I mean I'm sure there's so many more but that was definitely a few that just came up yeah, yeah. I I recognize some of those stories and I also realized how annoying I was back then because recently our parents just showed us these home videos and it would be like now here's Judy dancing and here's Judy playing the piano oh, oh now Judy's singing <laughs> yeah. and then like you're just in the background like standing there like you're like I don't care <laughs> yeah. about any of this for sure so I think I, I can see how annoying that is and um, <laughs> I yeah I don't really don't know where that came from but you're so right about our parents totally just raising us differently they mm-hmm. really did raise me more like a boy. I had short hair for most of my childhood, really yeah. short, ugly hair. Yeah. And um, it really made my junior high school just a mess. I mean, honestly, it was a really <laughs> rough time socially for me. Boys ran away from me. Um, I mean, it was really sad. My very first boyfriend that I was so excited about, um, turns out that he was trying to keep our relationship secret. But at the time, I thought it was such a cute thing. He was like, let's keep it secret. It's more romantic oh, that way. This. It's like Romeo and Juliet. Juliet. And then, of course, a very well-intentioned male friend said, Judy, honey, it's because he's embarrassed of you. Right. And that was my junior high school. Narrative. Do you remember his name? I feel like this is the place and time to just call him out and be like, yeah, his name is Roger. And you know what? <laughs> you still try to be my Facebook friend, but I rejected that Facebook <laughs> invite. Because you know what? I don't need Roger in my life. No, Um, seriously. I remember this story. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. But I mean, that really was... Roger was really cute, though. And I was like, why is Roger with Judy? That is so mean. That is so mean. I also the whole keeping a secret makes sense now. It's Doesn't it? And I I had a crush on my orchestra concert master because I was an orchestra in junior high. And I was too embarrassed to talk to him. So I would untune my violin to have a chance to have him fix my violin. Um, And later on, he said, I knew what you were doing because I would just see you standing in the corner messing up your own violin. And then all of a sudden you would come and be like, oh, no, please fix this. And so I obviously didn't know what I was doing. So socially, I felt like... I had a very awkward time, but I blame that partially on my parents and also how adept you were socially because you were always popular. Boys always liked you. That was not my experience. And as you said, I was a rule abider. So, I mean, really great classic example. My parents would say, okay, you can't go out. And I would scream at them and curse at them, but then I would go into my room and I wouldn't go out. I remember when you were in junior high, (laughs) you were so upset at the rules of our house that you ran away. Yes. And we didn't know when you were coming back. I mean, I felt like it was at least a week. It was, for it sure. It was at, at least a week. a week, maybe two. And we didn't know where you were because this was before the age of cell phones, really. We didn't mm-hmm. have cell phones. Nobody could reach you. And all of a sudden, one day, you called and I answered the phone. I said, oh, my gosh, Maria, where are you? And you said very calmly to me, I want to talk to our parents. And so I get them on the phone and you said, I will come back on three conditions. And you had conditions. You were like, I don't want a curfew. I want an allowance because we didn't have an allowance back then. And you were like, and I don't want to be questioned as to who I'm going to be hanging out with when I'm out of the house. And you know what? Our parents agreed. I could never get a, get away with that kind of thing. But you did. And because they obviously wanted you to come back. But I thought that was so ballsy that you basically were like, I'm not coming back. Yeah. Unless no, I knew you how do to, these things. I knew how to work the system. So you knew sure. it back then. But then I got sent to an all-girls boarding 
high boarding school, all girls Catholic high school that was also a boarding school. So I feel like our parents got the last laugh there. But yeah. Yeah. I felt like you had tried to go to four other public schools and had to then finally be sent to a... Maybe not four, but like a couple. I felt like it was four. (laughs) I really felt like we had a real journey with that. Yeah, I got in a lot of trouble in high school. You did, so. you did, but obviously it all turned out great. You did you? I know you actually finished your <laughs> bachelor's degree at UC San Diego, mm-hmm. and we actually lived together for a little bit because I was in grad school mm-hmm. at UC San Diego, and you were in an undergrad. And actually, we were so close then that we decided to live together, and that almost broke us. Do you remember? Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I think it's more like we thought we were so close that we were ready to live with each other. But then living with each other, yes, almost was the straw that broke the camel's back. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. I think we were just so different, you know, in terms of even just our living styles and habits. You're much more messy, like, and you're okay with that. You're not dirty, but you're more just your things are spread across and you know that there's an order there, but nobody else does. Mm -hmm. And we had to share a bathroom. I felt like that was the problem. If we had had two different bathrooms, I feel like it would have been great. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we had, we had some really crazy like fun and also interesting times in our relationship when Mm -hmm. we lived together where I really learned that I was still being like the big sisters I would try to pick up after you but really I shouldn't have been doing that because we're both adults and you should be able to have your room whatever (laughs) way you wanted yeah but I feel like that's the thing about our whole relationship up until maybe like the time I was 25 or so is I feel like we always like most of the time we weren't really close when we were younger, but then we had this little period when in our young adult lives where we got a little bit close again. But I think what really helped us become as close as we are now is actually going to therapy together. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, which I felt like helped our relationship tremendously. I don't really think that we would have made the strides in our relationship had it not been for that. And I feel like that was something that you really encouraged us to do, obviously, because at that point you were a therapist yourself. And mm-hmm. so I felt like, you know, it it seemed like the best way to kind of go about unpacking some of the issues that we had in our relationship growing up. And I feel like that was the game changer, honestly. Yeah. And I was so glad that you were open to that because I think that there is still a bit of a stigma against just mental health care in general, in the general public. But also we grew up in a more traditional Mm -hmm. Chinese family and it's pretty typical for traditional Chinese families to kind of feel like mental health is not something that you should necessarily prioritize. They care more about medical health and physical health. And they kind of see going to therapy in in some ways as a weakness. Like, Mm -hmm. why do you need to go and tell a stranger your problems and and have them solve it? But I remember that when I became a psychologist, I just felt like it was so inauthentic that I wasn't going to be doing my own work at all, Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't be willing to sit on the other side of the chair Mm-hmm. And actually be the person who was willing to self-reflect and work on myself in a more concerted way. Mm-hmm. And that's actually why I started to go to therapy is because I feel like you really should so that you know what it's like to sit on the other end. And so that if there's any issues that you have, that you clear yourself of those issues before you work with people. Otherwise, you bring your crap into the room and it's not good for your patients. And I've seen therapists like that where they spend the entire session talking about themselves. And it's like, hello, mm-hmm. you're not the paying customer and maybe you need to go get your own therapist. And I really didn't want to be that person. But you know, even then I struggled with that because I had some of that stigma mm-hmm. still of like, well, but if I could handle my life, why would I go to therapy? Mm -hmm. And it really took a huge change in my own mindset about it to even be able to do that. And so I was just so happy that you were willing to do that with me. And like you said, I really do think it's been really positive in our relationship. Yeah, I think that was definitely the one thing that growing up we really didn't have at all in terms of our relationship with our parents. Like, yes, did they put food on the table? Yes, did they take care of us? Yes, But could we ever go to them with our problems and talk to them, you know, without them just wearing this disciplinarian hat 
mm-hmm. of being our parents on and that was just never the case. Like I don't think I ever had a conversation with my parents that wasn't that didn't feel very forced or felt like I was constantly hiding stuff from them within the conversation we were having. Like I just never felt like I could have an open conversation with our parents and I don't think you were able to either because that just wasn't the how we communicated in our family. And it's funny because it makes me you know, I don't think I've ever asked you this, but like it makes me feel like I've always wondered, I guess, if you went into psychology because kind of our, the fact that we had that closed off type of communication with our parents and maybe you wanted to, you know, help other people open up their ways of not only communicating with other people, but, you know, the conversations they have with themselves. Because I honestly feel like that was something that I really needed in my life. And I didn't get that until I was more an adult, but it wasn't so compelling that I wanted to take that on in terms of Mm -hmm. becoming a psychologist. But I think I was always interested in it because of that. Yeah. You know, I think it's a good question. And for me, a big part of my origin story in psychology was that I was in the big brother and big sister organization and I worked with this foster kid and I was just a 15 year old. I didn't really know anything. And yet, just by showing up every week for this person and she didn't have any stable adults in her life, it was such an important part of her life. Even though I just sat with her, took her to ice cream, watched a movie with Mm -hmm. her, she really looked forward to Mm -hmm. our time together every week and I still keep in touch with her to this day. And so... I think it's so important to kind of highlight that one person can really be a huge positive trajectory for someone and it can change the path of their life, even just by sitting there and being there. But I'm sure that a secondary reason underneath it is like trying to understand like the human psyche from a different perspective. Because as you mentioned, you know, our parents are very intellectual and again, very consistent with traditional Chinese culture is they're being parents. They're not going to sit there and talk to you about their feelings because to them, that wasn't their job. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, I think in westernized parenting there's a little bit more of that back and forth I think but I think in Chinese parenting it's sort of they're there to teach you about what you're supposed to be doing and they're not supposed to be your best friend and they're not supposed to have that kind of emotional relationship with you and actually for a long time in my life I really deprioritized that too I really just focused on work and I focused on you know what I was achieving and the things that you could check off of a list and it wasn't until a little later that I really grasped the importance of an of a really balanced emotional life Mm -hmm. and being able to own up to your emotions and accept your emotions and negative emotions are okay too, right? And it it takes time to get there. So I think that that was later. I feel like I had this earlier story of why I wanted to get into psychology, but like as I became a psychologist, the more I knew, the more I realized I didn't know. And the Mm -hmm. more I felt like I had to develop my emotional life as well so that I could keep presenting myself as an authentic person who was walking the walk that I was teaching people. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I thought was really interesting is when you got into poker, everybody wanted to ask me what your poker secrets were. How do you become one of the top three female poker players in the world? And I think everybody kind of feels like they want to crack at it. You know, I think poker now is very popular Mm -hmm. and it's that American dream almost like a new American dream where maybe overnight they could become a poker success. Mm -hmm. So for people who are recreationally interested in poker or maybe people who are thinking about possibly taking it on as a career, what kind of tips do you have for them now that you've been doing it for so long and see all of the missteps that people make? Yeah. So I think for sure one thing that I always tell people, you know, whether they're a novice player or someone really experienced, I feel like something that they can really benefit from is just don't go with the flow of how everybody else is playing. I think as people, whatever it is that we're doing, whether we sit down in a social situation or we sit down at the poker table, we kind of want to fit in. So we always just start maybe subconsciously doing what everybody around us is doing. And I think in poker that happens too because I see people sit down and if the whole table is playing really wild, really aggressively, and everybody's, you know, very um, involved in every pot and playing every hand, then they're like, okay, well, yeah, I got to get in the mix too. And then they start kind of like, playing crazily and not really like, you know, you have your own game plan when you come in. You shouldn't just adjust it because you want to play how everybody else is playing. So I always say, see how the table's playing and actually play the opposite. So if everyone's playing really, really aggressively, you should actually hang back a little bit because it's much easier to capitalize on all the mistakes that people are making when they play very aggressively. 
Because the more hands that you're involved in, the easier it is to make a mistake. And so if you sit back, then you're kind of able to catch them when they make a mistake. And then that's how, you know, you're going to win your pots. You're not going to win your pots by trying to see, you know, who can play more wildly than the other person. Um, and conversely, if the whole table is playing really passive, then you should be really aggressive because that means that everybody else, they're kind of afraid to maybe get involved in pots or they're afraid to bluff. And when people kind of play scared, then you can take advantage of them by, you know, putting them in really difficult situations. Mm-hmm. So that's like one general tip um, that I always tell people. Yeah, um, that was the first tip you taught yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. And then another tip that I tell people is... Poker is a game of so many different levels. It's so easy to just sit there and look at your cards and be like, okay, what do I have? What do I have in relation to the board? And not even think about, okay, but now the second level is what does my opponent have? What could my opponent have? Because sometimes you get so fixated on like, okay, oh my gosh, I have aces. Oh, there's another ace. I have three aces Mm -hmm. now. And then you're like, oh, I have such a great hand (laughs) that you miss the fact that maybe there's like a flush on the board or a straight on the board. Right, you get like a tunnel vision. Yeah, that can beat you. And then you're just like overplaying your hand and you just want to go all in. And you're so excited and you oh, can't I've control your so emotions times. that you don't even... I can't control yeah. my emotions. You're so good with the poker face and just being calm. But I've had hands like that and I'm like shaking yeah. because I'm so happy about my hand. And like you said, I'm not paying attention to what's on the board and I immediately lose. And it, it's like such a bad mm-hmm. beat in my head. But actually, it's not a bad beat if I was paying attention. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's another thing I think people just are so focused on not even just what they have, but just, you know, everything in the hand that has to do with them, they they can, you know, recollect and tell somebody that story. But could you tell me what that other person was doing in that hand? Could you tell me, oh, did they look, you know, a certain way when this board came out? Did they look interested? Did they look disinterested? Like everybody mm-hmm. just is so inwardly focused that you just miss a lot of the other cues and signals that people are unknowingly giving off that gives you insight on the strength of their hand or, you know, whether or not they are planning to, you know, play this hand very aggressively because you seem disinterested. So those are like the different levels in poker, which are called like reverse tells, because if I seem disinterested because I actually have a really good hand and I want someone to think I'm disinterested, then somebody picks up the fact that I'm disinterested. Now it's up to them to decipher, am I really disinterested or am I pretending to be disinterested because I have a really good hand and I want them to play me as if they think I'm genuinely disinterested. But, you know, those are just all of these different things that if you just focused in on more on what the other people are doing and what your opponents are doing, then you can kind of play back at them in that way. You know, what I really loved when I first got into recreational poker, I would never dare touch professional poker, but I wanted to play some recreational games. I remember something that you taught me that was related to what you just said, which is that usually when you get your cards, you get super excited and you want to look at your own cards right away and you get all excited and what are you to do? And instead, you taught me to actually look at everybody else first because you can always look at your cards a little later. Mm -hmm. So when everybody gets their cards, what are they doing? Are they starting to reach for their chips because they're excited and they want to put Mm -hmm. money in? Are they frowning? Are they smiling? Are they taking a deep breath? And actually, that's what I do all the time now. When I sit down at a poker table, I always remind myself, don't look at your cards right away. Look around the table. Look at their facial reactions. Look at their body language. And then you can look at your own cards when it's your turn, basically, because yeah. you can always act in that moment. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, some people might find that a little annoying because you don't have an action right away, but it's okay that you take a few seconds mm-hmm. to decide what you're going to do next. Yeah. And yeah. my poker tips are so good that after I told you my poker tips, you actually won the first tournament that you played with my poker tips. So you're welcome. I did. It was at the Sahara, <laughs> at the Sahara Hotel in Vegas. And I even got a little commemorative cup that I still have. And it wasn't a lot of money. Like I said, it was a recreational poker mm-hmm. game. So I think I won $600, but that was one of the biggest victories of my life <laughs> to feel like I could do something like that. That was, was so, so out proud. of my... I was so proud of you. Yeah. Like... And I called you and actually I won a couple of other tournaments after that. I won mm-hmm. one on a cruise. Yep. I won one at Caesar's Palace. I mean, you yeah. really helped me become a very good <laughs> recreational poker player. But you're not just a poker player. People get so focused on this part of your life. And you actually have so many other talents. In fact, you did something that I only dreamed of and would have loved to be a part of my story. You were on American Idol. Yeah, which I'm actually surprised by because 
you definitely have the better singing voice than than me. But um, I don't know. Maybe I just had the right you kind of thing they were, were looking amazing. for. But um, I actually felt like my audition wasn't very good initially. And I what remember did you sing? I sang uh, "Get There" by Aletta Adams. Is that her last name? You know oh, that song? No, I don't. I don't. Okay, oh cool. God. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I sang that and then I remember they were like, okay, do you have another song prepared? And I was like, uh, yeah, but I didn't have another song prepared, oh. which I definitely should have. I feel like that's like auditioning 101 for yeah. one of those singing yeah. competition shows. Yeah. Um, but you know me, like I always just winged everything. Like I was oh, like, oh yeah. yeah, like there's an American Idol audition town. I'm just going to go. Um, <laughs> so I think my, uh. My uh, second song was, what was the name of that song that uh, Michael Bolton did originally and then Mariah Carey did it after? Um, uh, I like, this audition was so long ago, I can't even remember. Um, okay. It'll come to me. But, All right, yes. But then they were like, okay, they were like, okay, you're, that was... They were like, okay, that was pretty good. Um, and then like <laughs> I got to move on to the next stage. And then before I knew it, we were in Hollywood week. But I just crashed and burned so hard because it was like so nerve-wracking. I was only 18. You know, mm -hmm. I'm 36 now. So, I mean, when I was 18, I had never auditioned for anything. And to be up there and sing in front of so many people, but also the people that were auditioning with you that you all just like felt like saying better than you did. You were like, okay, I can't do this. Like uh -huh. I actually just like cracked under the pressure I felt like. And so I just wasn't ready, but then it definitely scarred me and I just never tried out for any oh, no. singing shows ever again. Because I was just about to say, what a great way to demonstrate how someone supercharges their life is you just do it even though you're afraid, but how come you're not going back? You should do it again. But okay, yes. The voice that doesn't have any, <laughs> any of age those restrictions. I, I don't I know why American Idol does, but you need to go on The Voice now. I don't think I need to go on The Voice now. <laughs> but I do feel like I... I do feel like in every other way, though, that is my way of supercharging my life in the sense of, you know, just diving into things headfirst and yeah, having do it no scared. fear. Do it scared. Yeah, yeah, because that's kind of how I stumbled on my broadcasting career because now I'm a poker broadcaster and I've done so many different poker shows and I've been lucky enough to do the World Series of Poker on ESPN, which is, I think, in everyone's opinion, the pinnacle of poker broadcasting, yes. but I would have never been able to get there had I not just kind of raised my hand and said, you know what, I'll try that because they were looking for um, commentators for this poker show. And especially there weren't any real females that could do the strategic commentary. You know, there were a lot of female sideline reporters. There was female like desk hosts and anchors, but there wasn't really a female in that strategic role in poker. And I was like, well, I know poker strategy. Like I've never done anything in broadcasting before, but I was brave enough to just say, you know what, give me a shot. Let me do it. And I definitely was not a good broadcaster when I first started out at all. But then, I mean, I felt like I picked it up pretty quickly and I was really eager to learn, you know, going back to what we we're saying about our parents and them showing us that, you know, it's okay to kind of take that leap of faith of, you know, bringing us to the States and just kind of learning as you go and just hoping it works out, but also putting in a lot of hard work mm -hmm. and dedication. And I feel like that's kind of how my broadcasting career evolved, but that's how in so many other, you know, things in my life, people are like, oh, how'd you end up on, you know, that or Amazing Grace or whatever? Or wh mm -hmm. Why'd you decide to do that? And I'm like... Honestly, I just was willing to go for it. It was never a thing of like I sat there. I never sat there and thought about, oh, my God, I would love to be on Amazing Race. Like so many people will watch Amazing Race and think for like 10 years they're going to audition and then finally do it. Right. I literally just thought I want to be on Amazing Race randomly. And then like the next time there was like an open call, I was there kind of thing. I wasn't it, – it, I usually just – if I feel like I have my mind set on something, then I'm really willing to just pursue it, no matter if I end up maybe making a fool of myself initially, because I feel like I'm confident enough to know that I could do a good job and get better at whatever it is that I'm attempting. And so, you know, that failure or that embarrassment is only really temporary and then I can prove myself. But I totally agree. And I've seen you do that time and time again in your life. 
It's how you got into poker in the first place. I love your story. I didn't know this about you. I didn't know that the first time you got into a poker game was that you bribed a few guys <laughs> with a keg of beer so that they would allow you to go sit at the table with them. Yeah. And what I'm really <laughs> proud of your achievements is the fact that you went headfirst into a career that is generally dominated by men, which I think some women might feel like it's a little intimidating, mm -hmm. but you went for it anyway. And you said, I deserve a seat at this table and I'm just going to work hard and then deserve my seat at the table. Even if in the beginning, maybe I didn't deserve it quite yet because you didn't have the skill sets, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't know what you were doing yet in broadcasting. And yet you jumped in, you learned as much as you could. You had mentors, you watched people do good broadcasting so that you could learn from other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a huge takeaway. I think it's so important just to know that you can put yourself into the situation and not overanalyze sometimes. And then sometimes if you fail, it's okay too. Because failure is the mother of success. You know, mm -hmm. it really is. You don't fail a few times, you're not going to get to the success, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to allow yourself that possibility and then generally you work so hard that it doesn't happen, which is really, really cool. But I want to talk about really quickly your Amazing Race tenure. <laughs> I thought it was so cool that you were on Amazing Race. I really do love that show. And you were on it with your best friend, Tiffany. Mm -hmm. You guys were both poker players at the time. And I thought that was really fun to kind of see your friendship unfold. But what I thought was the most ridiculous part of your Amazing Race journey was that you literally confirmed some of the worst Asian stereotypes <laughs> out there. I definitely do. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, and and like I do so vividly now because I actually just rewatched, like binge watched my <laughs> whole season of Amazing Race because that was ten years ago, and I just binge watched it with like the couple that won that season of the race, and I definitely. In the history of Amazing Race, at least up until the time I was on it, nobody had ever crashed a car on the show, but I did it. I sure did. This female Asian driver definitely yep. ran this like brand new Audi like straight through like this spike in the ground and it was total like it wasn't drivable that they had to get a replacement car so it actually held us back during that leg of the race because we were waiting for 45 minutes they were like this has never <laughs> happened before and I was like yep that's me that is so awkward <laughs> Tiffany probably should have driven no actually I will <laughs> say though I'm a better driver than Tiffany and you actually going on to the race beforehand have to agree like who's going to be the driver and it's oh. always the same person. And there are like situations where you have to drive a stick shift and neither of us knew how to drive a stick shift. And she actually trusted me with learning how to drive a stick shift. So um, wow. I was you the learned official how to drive a driver. Stick shift? Yeah, but not really drive. Wow. It, I didn't I really still don't know how, how to drive it. a stick I mean, shift. That really scares me. Um, yeah. But you also confirmed yet another Asian stereotype. And do you remember this one? There was a few. Yeah, you're going to have to bring okay. it Oh up. my gosh, there's so many. Oh, okay. good at math? Yes! 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 It was so ridiculous. There was like, honestly... There was just one challenge where I looked like an absolute hero because yes. every in every other challenge, I kind of looked like the dud of <laughs> of the two of us. Like my partner was definitely the stronger, more physical, more athletic one. But when it came to using my brain, that one worked out well for me. It was like a math one where it was like this – it was like gold bars mm -hmm. and had, had to put it on a scale. Yep. But then the gold – conversion rate into dollars kept changing on the screen and you had to figure out like how much gold equals how much this and then put it on the scale and you know oh you that killed was it. all me it was crazy was and the me. way they edited it too they they you guys were already oh, they done. made me look way better than i actually w did but everybody else had a much tougher time figuring it out yeah than I did, it was funny yeah. they would show yeah. you guys being all done with it and yeah. everyone else was still scratching their heads they were yeah. like scribbling things on paper trying to see if they could find some way to make the yeah. conversion work for them and so yeah i just thought that that was so funny that you had confirmed these two top asian stereotypes <laughs> that you're a bad female asian driver but then also that you're good at math but you were always really good at math and i think when we were kids too you were excellent at math and that was always makes sense now because poker also involves math. Yeah. Well, luckily, our mom would tutor us in math and like a couple of our 
It was like, so oppressive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was sure. a little oppressive. For sure. She'd be like, you know what? You know what? While the other kids are, you know, playing and having a good time, why don't you plus like four of our friends come for some extra math tutoring after school? Yeah. We but, were a very fun house, I think. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were definitely not the, the social house. But you know what? It, it's all good. We both grew up fine, mm-hmm. even despite some of those stereotypes. Yeah. I want to play a game with you. Are you ready to play a little game? Yes. You want to play a little Would You Rather? Sure. Okay. All right. So I'm going to give you two scenarios and you have to tell me which one you prefer. Okay? okay. A horrible job, but be able to retire comfortably in 10 years or have your dream job, but have to work until the day you die. Mm. I feel like it's got to be a horrible job and retire in 10 years because I feel like <gasps> having... Because I just feel like having that freedom of like actually being able to retire somewhat early and then enjoying your life from that point, it makes it kind of worth working a horrible job because I don't I don't want to, no matter how much I love my job, I don't think I want to work until the day I die. I don't yeah. think that sounds like anything anybody would want to do. Oh but my gosh, that's so interesting. You would For pick me, the this other? is so easy. No yes, way. yes, that's I would have weird. my dream job, but work until the day I die. I don't know. I kind of feel like I don't know. Retirement scares me. No, it does. I don't want to think about no, tra- retirement. I know, Judy. I know all about like your three and four hours, like days, uh, hours of sleep <laughs> that you get each night. Like you are legitimately the most ridiculous person I know. But like, I don't want to do that. I love to relax. Okay, I love fine. my downtime. You are really so, no. good at relaxing. I am you so are really good at relaxing. Good at relaxing. You, you, you really mellow out when we go on vacations. Yeah, because I remember when I wanted to take a vacation to Cabo because I had been so exhausted from all of my poker stuff. And I was like, yeah, you know what? It would be so fun to take a sister vacation. And I was like, oh, yeah, Judy, let's Mm -hmm. go do this together. And then remember what happened? Yeah, I completely just took over the trip. Yeah. And you literally gave me an itinerary of like (laughs) from nine to 10 today, we are going to have breakfast. And then from 10 to 11, we're going to drive to this really like crazy hike that lasted six hours. It was like legitimately the craziest hike I had ever done in my whole life. And all I wanted to do was lay on the beach and drink a margarita. And then it was like, and then, okay. And then tomorrow we're going to go to these caves and rappel (laughs) down the side of this like waterfall. And I'm like, what is happening to my vacation right now? That, is my va- that was my version of a vacation. I'm I doing know. better now, though, because we recently went back to Cabo again. Yes. And wasn't did. I much more balanced you, you with are. the trip? No, you're getting a lot better. Yeah, because, yeah. I'm trying. I'm yeah. trying. And Luckily. I'm sorry that I completely t- took over your trip. Um, okay, here's the next one. Have chap lips that never heal or <laughs> terrible dandruff that can't be treated. Oh, my God. That's so sad. I mean, honestly, you have to go with dandruff because I feel like (laughs) you want to like probably you're going to always like be looking at someone and they're going to be looking at your lips and you might want to kiss somebody and that's not cute. But people are looking at your hair. No, but like you could you could always just like wear a hat. Yes, wear a hat. I wasn't even thinking of that. But I'm saying like people have to be at a certain angle to kind of see the top of your head at all times. Whereas like you always have to look at someone face on. I don't know. That's such a hard one for me. But I think I would agree with you I yeah, think it's I feel like that's yeah I just the dandruff the chap lips I can't I can't stand it I always have yeah. lip balm or lip gloss and so yeah no but that one was terrible that was a horrible choice that we had to make okay be the best in the world at an obscure skill or average at a highly respected skill hmm I feel like Honestly, I kind of feel like this relates to poker because at one time I thought like being good at poker was an obscure skill. I'm like, not anymore. um, But I would rather be the best at an obscure skill, I think. Yeah, me too. Because we don't want to just be Be average. average. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Okay, this one, this is such a good one. Give up coffee or wine or just like alcohol. I think just give up coffee or alcohol. Oh, for sure. I would give up coffee before alcohol. What? Oh, what? no, I would give up. I alcohol. don't. There's no way. I feel like coffee is actually just something that you should really only be having. I feel like once a day, but alcohol is something that you could have like multiple times a day. I'm so but, different okay. from Maybe you. That's not, this. A good, that's not like a great like explanation I, of how that I works. enjoy my cocktails, but I have coffee every <laughs> I single day I know, but and I don't drink every single day. I feel day. like my argument was trying to be like, oh, too much coffee is bad for you, but then too much alcohol is actually bad for you too. But I don't Look at it that way. So you know, recently I just realized that I might be addicted to coffee because I was at a bachelorette party and we were up on the hill somewhere in an Airbnb and there was no coffee there. And if I wanted to get coffee, I would have to walk down this crazy hill. It was a mile. 
And the walking down's fine, but then I'd have to walk myself back up. And it was a legit hike. <laughs> and we were already going to breakfast at 11. And it was 8.30. And I walked up and down that hill to have coffee an hour and a half earlier. <laughs> so I think... That's why my answer is. But my like answer. for you, coffee doesn't even work on you anymore. It's just like I guess you either like the taste of it or it's a weird placebo effect for you I because literally you'll have coffee. Like we go out to dinner and you'll have coffee and it's like eleven PM at night. And I'm like, how could you possibly drink coffee at eleven PM? And then I'll just go right and to sleep. And then you can go to sleep. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's weird. It doesn't, doesn't affect work. me anymore. No. I think I I like what I'm saying. That's that's a sign of addiction because you yeah. have a tolerance to the coffee. Okay, here's the last one. Give up bathing for a month <laughs> or give up the internet for a month. I could give up bathing for a month because I feel like... You didn't like to take baths when you were I was young, I hated, hated taking baths. I was like the dirtiest, grossest kid. I like never yeah, you were. wanted to shower or take baths. So I feel like that would be easy. And plus, like I can't really... It's tough to live without the internet for a month. Wow. You know? Yeah. No, but I remember we had to throw you in the bath, yeah. mom and I. Um, but no, I, I, would, I would give up the internet for a month. I love taking showers. No way. I have to take <laughs> one shower a day. My husband takes two to three showers a day. So he loves his showers even more than me. I think I would know his answer too. Okay, so I want to close today's podcast with a supercharged tip for our listeners because really I think this podcast is going to help people by giving them something actionable they can do at the end. So, you know, they've heard our stories, they've heard what we talked about and hopefully they thought that was fun, that they thought it was interesting, but like what can they do today to actually improve their life right in this moment? And for me, I thought that we could talk about the supercharged secret of taking a trip down memory lane because people don't realize that that's actually an amazing mood boosting tip. And that's basically what we did today. We took a trip down memory lane. Mm -hmm. I learned some things about you that I didn't even know, um, which is, I think is really cool. But tell me about maybe a positive memory that you like to visit from time to time, because what we found in research is that when people do this, they take a walk down memory lane, they actually improve their mood. They kind of reorient their values. You know, what's really important to me. And it inspires them to do more things to create those positive moments in their lives again. So tell me about a good memory that you visit from time to time and what it has done for you. Well, I feel like just us talking a lot today just about how we were raised and just growing up, it really made me think a lot about our grandmother who is our mom's mom and, you know, she passed unfortunately, you know, several years ago, but I feel like a huge part of my growing up because she moved to the states so that she could raise us because our parents were always working was um her walking me to school and, mm. you know, our grandmother, she didn't know how to read. English, obviously. And so she actually didn't know how to read any of the street signs. She only like knew, you know, what street we lived on, but then she would memorize how to get to my school mm -hmm. and she would, you know, so she would know what route to like walk every day to come and pick me up from school and then walk back with me. And I feel like that's always just such a like great memory uh, from my childhood um, because it was the time, like it was the best time that I got to spend with her because we would always be walking and talking the whole way. And I just remember thinking how loved I felt because I knew that, you know, it wasn't like, oh, okay, I'm gonna, you know, turn on this street and just look at the sign. Like she didn't know. And if she like took a wrong turn somewhere, she would just be lost for hours. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, just, just how much love, you know, she showed and how, much, you know, care she gave us growing up and how she really added and enhanced our upbringing. And um, mm -hmm. she was such a big part of our lives growing up. And so that always makes me happy just to think about all the times that I like, you know, we would hold hands and skip and all of those things. And so <laughs> that was just, that's just like one of my best memories growing up. So yeah, you know, I love that, um, that you're mentioning our grandmother because she was so pivotal for us um, in our upbringing. She was almost like a second mom to us because our parents were so busy working that she really did a lot of the child raising. And I have so many beautiful memories of her too. And I think it, it reminds me of a time when, as you mentioned, we were unconditionally loved. And that type of positive attachment is so helpful even as an adult to remember that because sometimes we feel down about ourselves. We don't feel great. And then we remember that we're really loved by some people. And we all need community. All human beings do. 
when we know that now from research where people who feel lonely and don't have a community, they have chronic medical illnesses, they have more psychological stress, and sometimes they even die earlier. And so it just shows us how important that sense of community really is, especially starting at such a young age. So I love the fact that you shared that memory. So Maria, it's been amazing to get to talk to you on my very first episode of The Supercharged Life with Dr. Judy. Where can people find you if they want to learn some poker tips, hear about your black psychology applications, <laughs> learn how to manipulate people? Where can people find you? Um, so they could see uh, like all of my travels and poker stuff. And I do have some poker tips on my Instagram. So they can find me at uh, Maria underscore Ho on Instagram. And then on Twitter, I have like good poker tips on there, but also I have some fun poker stories that I like to tweet out. There's always something funny happening at the poker table. So they can find me on Twitter at Maria Ho. And, you know, if they check out my website at MariaHo.com, there's, you know, various things that I'm doing, you know, clips of my broadcasts that I've done and, you know, a lot of other stuff. So. Awesome. Yeah. But don't ever try to invite you to a home poker game because <laughs> you don't do those, right? You don't do home poker games. <laughs> I try not to because it's so hard to like play poker for fun now that I do it for a living. And people are always like, yeah, just come over and play a game. It'll be so much fun. I'm like, yeah, for who though? Like yeah, I, that's your job. Um, but, but yeah, I will occasionally, but no. But You've never really played anymore. at a home poker game with me. No. You walked but. away from one when we tried to invite you to one and you didn't like the way it was going because you started to lose and you left. But I feel like everybody <laughs> expects that as the pro, if I show up, I'm supposed to win. And obviously yes. we know that that doesn't work every single time. And I'm like, I can't be expected to like come and just like beat everybody. Like it's like, it's it's not going to happen that way. So I don't like that pressure. <laughs> well, even if you don't win, I still love you. Yeah, so maybe you should reconsider <laughs> the poker game sometime. But thank you everyone for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe. Please tell your friends about it. And you can find this podcast wherever podcast podcasts are being broadcasted or advertised. So please just find us, subscribe, and let us know what you want to hear. Tell us a little bit about what types of topics you'd like us to talk about, or maybe the types of guests you'd like me to interview. And if you're lucky, Maria will come back again, and she'll share even more of her poker dark secrets and how we can apply it. To or just your dark secrets. I, you already shared a lot of mine. I got so many more of those, guys. I know. She has a lot of embarrassing <laughs> stories of me, so we'll probably have to have, have, have you back and talk more about that and about... You know, Two words, very- guys. Headgear. Just picture oh, that. No. I'll be back with that. She will be back and with more. that. And on that note, thanks again for joining <laughs> us. And this is Dr. Judy. See you guys later. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. And if you like the show and want to learn more, follow the podcast and check me out at Dr. Judy Hope. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. And take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life.